0: Acts 6. That's where we're at. Let's, let's read together. I'll read. You listen. Follow along if you have Bibles. Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. Verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenus, we'll call him Parmesan, that's I like to call him, uh, Nicolaus, the proselyte, of Antioch, what you do is you go over them really fast and then you think like everyone knows what you're talking about. Um, They sat there before the apostles they prayed and they laid hands on them, verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then, verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And... They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the Holy Spirit, against the holy place and the law. for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15 to close. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, Father, just thank you for this account. And it it seems maybe distant to some of us here and maybe, you know, what does this really have to do with us today? Um, But I do pray that uh, we see what it has to do with us today. Lord, that you would speak to us uh, as a church, as a people. Um, Lord, that we would um, know you better, uh, love you more, serve you with, with, with zeal and, and see uh, and hope and pray uh, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in Luke, excuse me, we're in Acts, written by the Dr. Luke. Two volumes, one book, Luke, Acts. As you know, as we've been saying all along, Acts is a book that uh, Luke tells us that it's a continuation of all that Jesus did, continues to do, as God's people have been called and and given this promised Holy Spirit to be witnesses of the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection and ascension of King Jesus. And we have seen up to this point as we're studying through the book of Acts that that's exactly what happens. Um, They're witnessing about Jesus. And before we get into chapter 6, let me just set the the scene for us. Uh, The church is growing. This new church planted in Jerusalem is growing, even under persecution. And Luke wants us to, be, to, to, to see that, to be clear, that no matter what comes against the church, the churches continue to grow. And he mentions it over and over again in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received the word were baptized, and 3,000 souls came to faith. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4, 4. 5000 people come to faith Acts 5:14 more than ever believers were added to the Lord Acts 9 the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and they were being built up Acts 13 the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region Acts chapter 16 the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily Acts 19:20 the word of the Lord continued to grow and prevailed mightily Luke, Luke wants us to know that, that the church of Jesus Christ is growing. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus said, I will build my church. Not maybe if it works out, you know, we'll see how things go after a couple of hundred years, and then we'll, we'll just see, you know, whether or not we should continue on this track. No, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He never promised that it would be easy. Jesus never promised that it would be without conflict, be without persecution. Actually, if you read the New Testament, Jesus said, expect it. It's going to come. And just before we get into chapter 6, if you notice, even in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira disobey God, lied against the Holy Spirit, you know, in the midst of the community, and God strikes them dead. And even though their sin offended the community, it it was mainly against God. Two weeks ago, we saw in chapter five, at the end of chapter five, the obedience of the apostles and how this angel uh, uh, came to them in a prison, you know, sprung them from this jail cell and told them, listen, go back into the temple and teach the people about Jesus. This flew directly in the face of the other religious leaders who had told them not to speak, not to talk, and not to teach anyone about Jesus. And their response in chapter four and five was, Listen, we don't know if it's right in God's sight. You be the judge of that, but we cannot stop speaking the name of Jesus. We are witnesses to these things. We must obey God rather than men. That's what he says in chapter six, chapter five. And then at the end, if you have your Bibles open to the end of uh, Acts chapter five, we find an astonishing thing. They were told twice. They were in prison twice. They were warned and scolded And then in chapter 5 at the end, it says, verse 40. And when they called them the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name. All right? He beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. Verse 41. Unbelievable. Then they left the presence of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, where were they? In the temple. The place they were scolded and told not to go. The place they said, don't go, let's beat you and see if that will stop you. No, nope. it said they went back into the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So this, this newly formed church in the midst of dishonesty with Ananias and Sapphira the, the, from within the church, this severe persecution from outside the church is pressing on pressing on it's moving forward and what I love about going through books of the Bible like we do here is that it's easy to take verses out of Acts and glamorize the first century church you know this is the way it's supposed to be but Luke is a realist Luke tells us about the deceit Ananias and Sapphira Luke tells us about this power hungry man named Simon we'll get to in the Samaritan movement he tells us about John Mark who was on the first missionary journey with Paul and gets homesick and wants to go back home and and a big, a a sharp disagreement between the apostles breaks out. He talks about the the doctrinally confused Apollos in in Acts 18. We'll get to Acts 15, you'll see this this conflict arise with the law of Moses and, and how does it apply to Gentile believers? I mean, you go through the books of the Bible, and, and you see that. We went through Genesis uh, a couple, about two years ago. And one of the things I heard over and over uh, from you, speaking to you guys about the, about the series, is that, wow, I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know Abraham did that, you know, pimped his wife out twice. Well, all we hear is about this, this sacrifice of Isaac on the mountain. Those things are great. He had great faith those days, but he also failed. And in Acts, we see problems persecution troubles and chapter six we have an issue that arises in the church but the church keeps going you know the church is growing people are coming to faith there should be an expectation when you get a room full of people if you get five sinners together there's going to be some problems you put 50 sinners together there's going to be even greater problems. You put 10,000, I don't know how many by now, but 8,000 sinners, Christians, together, expect problems. It's going to be problems. You can put them, you know, and some of you are thinking, yeah, because of those people that are here, right? It's their fault. And that, that's really the problem, is that you think that way. You know, it's everybody else's fault. Uh, we have different opinions. We have different things going on. There's conflict. And what I love about this is it, it deals with it head on. Luke's a realist, realist. it deals with it head on. So what we're going to do, and we'll go through these quickly. I have five different uh, movements in this passage that we're going to look at. First we'll look at the problem, then the purpose, then the plan, then the pleasure, and then finally we'll look at the persecution. And we'll go through these quick. We'll we'll leave on time, sometime after the snow melts. No, Um, this is a big issue. If you're here today going, you know what, this had these problems back then, you know, so long ago, the Hellenists. The, the the well, who are they? It doesn't make any sense. This is huge in the book of Acts. This is a, this is a transition in the life of the church, dealing with these these issues that are happening in the church, and we get to see it firsthand how they you know how they dealt with it. It's going to set a precedent for the church for two thousand years and, and continuing until Jesus comes back. So, what's the problem? What problem did they face? Persecution from outside. Some division from within, and and now a problem arises in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, now in these days, the church was exploding, persecution was coming, the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. That word is a murmur. There's things going on in the body. People are talking. By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's the problem. Complex issues arise when you put people together. And now there's a need that, has to take, that takes place and people have to do something about it. The Hellenist women were the, were the Greek-speaking Jews in that day. Um, they probably were not born and raised in Jerusalem. They were from the Dispersia. They were probably all over the different regions. They had come to Jerusalem. Um, they were Greek speaking. They, they had, were probably influenced by some, some Greek culture. Um, and they're being neglected in the daily distribution of goods. The Yakana, it means the ministry of, 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 of um, uh, the daily ministry. It probably had to do with food. It probably had to do with maybe some clothing. They're being neglected. By who? By the Hebrews. They were the the, the the natural born ladies that spoke Hebrew. They were they were from that region. Uh, they spoke Aramaic and probably Hebrew. And both of these groups, the Hellenistic Greek speaking Jews from another region, and the Hebrews, the, the naturally raised people, were having conflict. They, they 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 were they were they were not taken care of. Um, you know, their their knees weren't taken care of that well. And I think. Immediately what I think about is that we come from such different backgrounds we come from such different cultural expressions that being a Christian doesn't just wipe that stuff away we had I don't know six weddings this year and some of some of the people that were married this year here in this room and, and you learned quickly that you come from different cultures like really we do that for Christmas that's what you guys do we don't do that all of a sudden now we got conflict. This is what I've been doing for the past 20 years. Well, this is what I've been doing for the past 20 years. All of a sudden now, you have these different conflicts. And that's what's going on. Now, we don't know exactly why, right? Sometimes we don't know why we do the things we do. Maybe there was some racism going on there. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Greeks looking down, uh, the Hebrews looking down on the Greeks. We're the true Jewish, you know, faith. I don't know. But there was a problem going on. And there was a misunderstanding. And uh, there was a complaint that arose up in the community. Have, ever, have some of you just moved, I mean, we talked about it a few minutes ago, it came up from uh, Memphis, Stephen and Heather, um, you ever move into another community and you're the outsider? You know, when I moved to Voorheesville, you know, when you go to all the sporting events, you know, there, there's, there's the people that are from that area. Like, you kind of feel like, you know what, I, I, I really don't know what's going on, I kind of feel a little bit of cold shoulder from time to time. That's what was going on here. And it, it, was, it was a problem. Being a widow in that day was difficult, right? Didn't have handouts, didn't have government, you know, at, at the door. It was hard for a, a, a widow to get by. It was important for the church. It it goes back into the Old Testament. Moses gave regulations for the widows of that community. They were supposed to raise up and take care of these ladies. But here, somebody's being neglected. Remember the story of Naomi and Ruth. They left Moab. Moab to move back toward near Jerusalem so they can get taken care of. But not only were there a conflict within the church where they needed to care for each other, let me ask you this, who else, what other importance, and we'll open it up, I don't care, there's not that many people here, what, who else is looking, who else is watching this take place? The rest of the world, Right? You call yourself Christians, you talk about Jesus' love for each other, you know, you guys are are preaching love and and gospel, and the rest of the world is watching. What's going to happen in this church? You say you love Jesus, uh, do do you love each other? The world was watching. I mean, Jesus said, "By by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. So the world was watching as well. And there was needs being met. Kent Hughes, he has a commentary called A Church of Fire. Listen to the story he tells in his commentary. Uh, He says, there was a certain church in Dallas, Texas, that decided to split. Each faction filed a lawsuit to claim the property, the church property. A judge finally referred the matter to the higher authorities in the particular denomination. A church court assembled to hear both sides of the case and awarded the church property to one of the two factions the losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. During the hearing, the church courts learned that the conflict had all begun at the church dinner when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. He writes, unfortunately, this was reported in a newspaper in Dallas and everyone got to read it. That's a black eye. So the handling of this problem is huge. Not only because we're called to physically care for one another, but it, it demonstrates Jesus to the world. We have problems and we have needs that are not being met. We, we have to look and see how could we love one another. It's also huge because what was trying, what was happening in that day in, in, in Acts chapter 6 is a possible distraction of the preaching of the word of God. Look at the purpose, verse 2. We have to do something about this. Verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Notice what he says immediately. It is not right. What would our lives be like if we woke up every day and we were responding to difficulties and problems and we said, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing? Not, Not what's the easy thing. Not the, not, not the popular thing. What is the easy thing to do? Not the popular, but the right thing. That's what they say. What's the right thing? So these guys, they gathered the a whole congregation. They said, look, we can't function as leaders in the church. We, we're, we're, we can't get into the word. We're into prayer. We're preaching and teaching the word and have to stop all the time being interrupted because of, of the, you know, the food distribution. You know, we have to delegate this responsibility. D.L. Moody said, it's better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. The leaders of the church wanted to keep their primary role as teachers and preachers of the word of God. Not the superior or inferior. It's not like, you know, you guys take care of this measly nonsense, but they had a primary responsibility of preaching and praying. And you know what? Sometimes, and you know this in your own life, Sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you have to say no to some things, even some good things, so that you can say yes to the things that are primary. It's hard. Some people have a hard time saying no. But they recognize that if they don't say, listen, we can't do this, there's nothing wrong with with a leader humbling himself, taking care of the day-to-day operations and serving tables. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I'm being drawn away from the primary thing, and that is the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. When that happens, the whole church will suffer. And and, and notice, it's not because they're doing something wrong. I, I want you to see that. It's not like they want to serve the Lord. They want to preach the word. They want the women, the Hellenists and the Hebrew women to have food. They want to do the right thing. It's because of ministry. It's because of service. It's because of the things that they want to, to serve the Lord, that problems are coming, that they're having, you know, issues. Last week, Bill, uh, Pastor Bill preached on the importance of good doctrine, right understanding about God and, and the need to keep loving people. And what, the, what you see here in the apostles, they're, they're wanting to keep that balance, like all churches should. They want to be in the ministry of the word, and they want to make sure people are being taken care of. They don't throw off and say, you know what, let's shut down the ministry of the word, let's stop preaching, and let's open up, you know, a soup kitchen, make sure everyone's fed. And then they also didn't say, you know what, leave me alone with this nonsense, I'm in the word of God, I'm teaching, I'm preaching, I'm doing all the important things, you guys take care of that. They didn't do that. They said, let's bring balance. So let's raise up some people, let's get some help, let's delegate some work, and get, make sure it gets done. Verse four says, so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Folks, I'll tell you that all the pastors in this church, and I am so proud of, of, of all the pastors in this church, uh, Nathan and Bill, since they came on, has done some great preaching, Bill did a great job, uh, Nathan did a great job a few weeks ago. They take preaching seriously. They study hard. They pray hard. They want to come with a message. Uh, we want to come with a message that is spirit-filled, that is bathed in prayer. Anybody know Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? He was a, 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 a Welch pastor uh, in England. Um, he, would, he would constantly uh, talk about, or he would, in, in some of his memoirs, and some of his books, he's passed away, he's with the Lord now, but he would say uh, that a man of God the only way he could really preach a powerful message, something that is anointed of God, is if it's bathed in prayer. And when, 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 when we preach the gospel, when the gospel is being preached and a man is bathed in prayer, there's a sense of the presence of God, he would say. The, the very presence of God is in our midst. The, the consciousness, the, this, this idea that God is among us. He says the listener would say, this is not about the preacher, but about God. He's exalting the name that is above every name. And let let me quote something he wrote. He said this. He said, all powerful preaching, prayer, powerful preaching should avoid cleverness and smartness. The people will detect this. He says, and they will get the impression that you are more interested in yourself and your cleverness than in the truth of God and their souls. He writes, a preacher must always convey the impression that he himself has been gripped by what he is saying. If he has not been gripped, nobody else will be. He must impress the people by the fact that he is taken up and absorbed by what he is doing. He is full of matter and he is anxious to impart this. And that primary, pre, the, he says, preaching the word is the primary task of the church, the primary task of the leaders, the people who are set in this position of authority. He must not allow anything to detect him from, from that, however good the cause may be, however the great the need is preaching of the word of God, bathe in prayer. And, and I'm going to ask you guys, I, I, I don't know if, if, you, if you regularly pray for the leaders in the church. I, I'm asking that you would do that. I'm asking that you would pray for the preaching ministry here at King's Chapel. If you could remember that from time to time and pray for us as we're in the word, as we're, as we're preparing sermons, as we're, we're sifting through the scriptures and asking Jesus, what do you want us to say to the people? How do you want us to convey your word to the people? Number three, the plan. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, who will appoint, who we will appoint to this duty. Some people believe that this is the beginning stages of deacon ministry. We have deacons and deaconesses here. And some see Acts chapter 6 as the beginning of that deacon, deaconess ministry. I do. I, I don't know if this was exactly the role that they, they, they chose at this moment, saying, all right, we're going to have this church office in this scripture, but later on in the New Testament, you'll see the office of deacon and deaconess. You see it in Philippians 1, you see it in 1 Timothy 3. But let me just say this, in the immediate text, the, the, the apostles are looking for who? Men of good repute. Men who have a good reputation. Men who can be trusted. Men who have been known through the community uh, that they care about people. Find us men with with good reputation. Men who can be trusted. Men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that they're controlled by the Spirit of God. That they hear the voice of God. They're they're following after and being influenced by Jesus. He's got to have wisdom, it says. They're dealing with Different things going on in the church. There's got to be some wisdom. What they don't want is some hotshot, self-absorbed person trying to make uh, sure everything went, was going right and people are being cared for. There to be humble men in the church. And, and let me just digress for a moment here. What you see here in these couple of verses is the different roles between the leaders and the deacons and the congregation. It's a great study to do. And maybe in your community group, you could talk about that a little bit. But the leaders are called to lead. The leaders are called to shepherd. 1 Peter 5, he writes, I exhort the elders, the presbyteros, the the, the leaders among you, as a fellow leader and elder witnessing the suffering of Christ. He says, shepherd the flock. He's talking to leaders. Uh, Shepherd them. That's where we get the term pastor, the flock. Exercising oversight. That means to take leadership and and oversight over the congregation. And what you have here is the working of these leaders stepping up to the plate, saying, look, we need to do this, and, and, let's, and you go to the, they go to the congregation, and in the congregation they pick out seven men that can serve. And you see the working together of this ministry. And I will point this out, and I pointed it out before, is that the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers, are to teach the word of God, and their roles are not very specific in the culture, but the deacon ministry is. Right? There's the Hellenists, there's Hebrews, they're fighting. We don't have that going on here. We have deacons and deaconesses that do different things. We have a church ministry, uh, a deaconess that does the children's ministry. Someone oversees to make sure the kids are being taught correctly. We have people doing sound, we have people uh, uh, bringing clothes and, and food. and we, that's, that's what a deacon's ministry is all about. It's about what's bound in culture. What kind of people has God brought to King's Chapel, and how can we serve and meet their needs? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. I want to point out just a couple things before we move on that's going on in this text. Somebody by the name of Robert Deffenbaum, Deffenbaum, I read his commentaries. He's a pastor. He's a Dallas graduate uh, in Texas, and, and he just notes a couple of things that's going on in this text between the congregation, the deacons who are serving, and the leaders who are overseeing the ministry. He writes a couple of important things, I think. I just want to read them to you real quick. Number one, he says, what you have in this text is that the apostles... The leaders led the church and led as a group. There's a pluralistic kind of gathering together as the apostles came together and said, "Hey, we need to figure this out." Number two: the apostles led by involving the whole congregation in solving the problem. The whole church was called together. They were appraised of the problem and given a significant role to play in the solution. Number three: the apostles led with wisdom and skill. They quickly recognized the problem and its seriousness. They acutely, accurately, excuse me, appraised the problem. They prompted, uh, uh, they promptly acted on the problem to bring about a solution. The leaders delegated because the apostles saw that they cannot do it all their own. And you see this working together. It wasn't like, hey, how many ideas do we have out there? Let's just throw it all against the wall and see what happens. No, the leaders stood and led the congregation together to fix the problem that was at hand. It was a wonderful passage of a spirit-led congregation just serving the Lord and finding out what his will is, which brings us to the pleasure. When you interpret narratives historical narrative in other words when 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 we read the bible of things that are happening it doesn't always tell us whether or not god is pleased with what's happening in the old testament you'll read about david having multiple wives and concubines and in that passage of scripture when you read about them he got so he gets all these women it doesn't say whether god was pleased or not in that passage and people have walked away going you know what it's okay to have concubines and, and multiple wives it's not. You can read other places in the Bible. But you understand what I'm saying? Here in this passage, though, look what it says in, in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen and these other men. In other words, the, 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 the way in which the congregation worked these things out was clearly seen by the people of God as something that was good, something that was right, something that was pleasing to them. Do you realize that every one of these names... In our text is a Greek name. That's interesting. The problem was the Greek speaking ladies and, and the Hebrew ladies and the Greek speaking ladies were not getting taken care of and what does the church do? They get seven men who are from the Greek culture to make sure that things are working out. That's interesting. You could talk about that in your community group. Why would they do that? Is that the best thing to do? Obviously, they thought it worked out very well. Um, these men are filled with the Spirit, and they are making these decisions. Um, Alistair Begg says these leaders needed to be spiritual and sensible. I like that, spiritual and sensible. They're not so earthly-minded and no heavenly good, or they're not so heavenly-minded and no earthly good. They understood what needed to be done in the time that needed, to be, uh, needed it to be done. And then what do the apostles do? They say, all right, let's, let's anoint them, let's, let's pray over them, let's lay hands on them, a signifying a new task that they have uh, to do. And they, and they pleased the whole congregation, and they were off to serve. But look at verse 7 before we move on, if we're wondering what God was thinking about this decision. And the word of God, verse 7, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's the clue. It pleased the congregation. It pleased God. People began to, to get saved. Even the priests. They were the ones that were persecuting these men. And some of them came to faith. I mean, humanly speaking, they probably were the ones that you would say, they would never come to Jesus. That's what they used to say about me. In my, in my heyday. He'll never be, he'll become a Christian. Like, really? And God reaches down and saves some of the priests. And here we see God's blessing on the church. Luke wants to see this cause and effect. Luke wants to see that as the leaders led, helping the church keep the main thing the main thing, the congregation responded, and the people's needs were met. They didn't yield to the temptation to divide or to be distracted They're serving each other, they're loving each other, they're meeting needs, and the elders and the teachers and the leaders were given that opportunity to continue to minister in the word, to God be the glory, okay? Let's finish up, let you guys go. The persecution, we're just gonna touch on one thing here, and uh, we'll pick it up next week because we'll look at chapter seven, which is the longest sermon in the New Testament, okay? Which is chapter seven of Acts, so the persecution Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing mighty things, great wonders and signs among the people. Then those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, the Syrians, the Alexandrians, and then those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. uh, But they could not stand wisdom and the spirit in which he was preaching and teaching. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. As the church presses on, there's pushback. Last weekend, I wasn't here. Uh, Bill filled in, did a great job. We were up in Saratoga, my wife and I, to the Weekend of Remember Conference in um, Saratoga. It's a marriage conference. And the last session, Sunday morning, they brought all the, the couples that were, went through the weekend together into their last session. And one of the things the speaker said that caught my attention, because I've said this in the past too, is that, you guys had a great weekend together. You guys worked on stuff together. You guys hopefully made strides in your marriage together. But have your eyes open. Because Satan does not want that. Be prepared. When you go to the, that mountaintop, there's the valley. So the Bible says don't be ignorant of the schemes. Here the church is, is growing. And here we find more persecution. Now, I I just want to look at the the accusations that they made. Look with me in verse 11. Stephen is called a blasphemer. Blasphemy means to speak in a reproachable manner. He's being accused of speaking evil against God. He's being accused of having derogatory, irreverent, you know, things about God, saying things that aren't true. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, 12 and 13, it looks like there's a, let me read it to you if you have your bibles look at verse 12 it says and they stirred up the people no verse 11 go back to verse 11 then they secretly instigated men who said we have heard him speak blasphemous words against moses and against god verse 13 and they set up false witness said this man never ceases speak words against the holy place and the law okay saying the same thing he's got things he's been saying about moses and things he's been saying about god about the law and about the temple. The temple was a place where God dwelt. The temple was a place where the Hebrews gathered together in the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory came. And and God when you speak about the temple and you speak against the temple, you speak blasphemous things against God. That's the way they interpreted. That's what they understood. The verse 14 makes it even more clear. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, and will change the custom that Moses delivered to us. That's the law and that's the descriptions of, of the law that Moses handed down to us. And the question that I just want to touch on for a moment is what did Stephen really say? You know, what was his false witnesses This witness that was brought against him. Was it totally fabricated? Did he say none of those things? Let let me tell you what I think is going on. I think the false witnesses were not directly outright liars. What they did was they twisted the words of Stephen to fit their own agenda. They misrepresented his words and his intentions. Just like the similar charges against Jesus... And the falsehood they brought against him. And now Stephen is taking the place of Jesus because they lied and and they misrepresented, they twisted Jesus' words when he was ministering on earth. Stephen was just being faithful to the teaching of Jesus. And they were rejecting Stephen as they rejected Jesus. Now, Jesus spoke about the temple's destruction, literally being destroyed in Matthew 24. That the prophecy, that the destruction of the temple will be, you know, the, will, the temple will come down. But he also parallel, paralleled the temple with his body. Mark 26, excuse me, Matthew 26, Mark, Mark 14. Jesus was constantly harassed, brought forth charges against for him saying that he would, or the temple would be destroyed. Now listen to this. While he was on the cross, People who were mocking him not only were walking past him, but those who were at the place where he was being crucified said to him, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down off the cross. So Jesus said something of those words, and they twisted those words and were hurling it back at him. But we know what Jesus meant. Fortunately, we have the record of it. John chapter 2, verse 18, listen to what this says. The Jews said to Jesus... What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. This is Jesus talking now. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He did say that. Then the Jews then said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John gives us a side note. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When it comes to the customs of Moses, Jesus came not to give us a new law, not to abolish the law, not to replace the law, he came to fulfill the law in complete obedience and righteousness and once he did he became the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins. john piper said what jesus is saying is when i die the temple dies when i am destroyed the temple is destroyed the whole system all the sacrifices, all this blood flowing to make atonement for sins, all this priestly activity surrounding the holy place where God's presence dwells, it all ends when I die. You destroy me, and in dying, I destroy the temple." End quote. Jesus himself fulfilled the perfect law of Moses. Things are going to change in Acts. We're going to see as as this uh, the, the teaching of the New Testament teaching is unfolding in the life of the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to see a lot of that, but we need to know. They needed to know. They didn't get it that Jesus is now the high priest who intercedes for us eternally. That the temple, everything in the temple, pointed to Jesus. When the curtain was torn in two, the temple place was obsolete. Jesus alone offered himself. It was his blood once and for all to make an eternal redemption. No longer sacrifices are needed. When Jesus made himself the mercy seat of the temple, Piper writes, and made his own blood the blood of the covenant, the glory of God, the old Shekinah glory of the temple came down and rested on Jesus. And it was that glory that glory that raised him from the dead. Peter, the apostle, said that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. James calls him the Lord of glory. The temple is no longer. Stephen was just preaching and teaching what Jesus had taught, that he someday will die. They will crucify him. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. And he is the glory of God. We have a new temple, a new priest, new sacrifice a new access to glory and fellowship with God. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Revelation 21. And we'll wrap this up in this last passage. Revelations chapter 21. The band can come on up. 21-20. Look with me, Revelation 21-22. Revelations 21 22. Everything we've been saying. John writing on the island of Patmos. And I saw what? No temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the, somebody have it? The Lamb. Talk about keeping the main thing the main thing. Stephen got it. Stephen got it. You got it? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of glory. You are the king eternal. You are true God and true man. You alone came. You alone stepped out of heaven's glory. You alone took on flesh and blood. You alone lived a perfect, sinless life. A life we could never live. And yet you died to death. We should have died. You're exalted above all things. The main thing, the main thing. So much stuff going on around us, Lord. We want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And his name is Jesus. There's ever a decision that we need to make, an eternal one, that is trusting him and him alone. And Father, I pray, we pray for those in this room that may have gotten sidetracked for, for, for different things and not have kept the main thing the main thing. Lord, we pray that our hearts and our eyes will be fixed upon Jesus, that he will take the center of our life and that everything will flow from that relationship. How worthy is he who died for us, who rose for us, who loved us and accepts us and washes us and cleanses us from our filth, dirt, and shame. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We want to worship you today. We confess our sins. We acknowledge that we are wicked and we need a Savior. And we pray that you, Lord of glory, would fill this room and draw us close to you. Holy Spirit, come. Bring us conviction about our sins. Help us to turn from them and help us to trust Jesus and him alone. Father, help us keep the main thing the main thing. Help us tear all idols down and keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.